Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Have you ever um, been like channel surfing? You know, you got the remote and you're just kind of going through. And, and, and in your channel surfing, you kind of dial by one of those religious channels, you know, church channels, something like that. Um, and, and on the screen, on the TV, is this faith healer. You know, and he's putting hands on people and they're falling over and all that kind of stuff. Do you ever, do you ever stop and watch that a little bit? And, and if you do, honestly, what's your first reaction? Are you skeptical? Or, or do you accept that as, as face value? Do you kind of wonder what's going on here? Is this for real? Or is it not? Or maybe something like this. Maybe a friend of yours tells you they've just been diagnosed with cancer. Not sure how bad it is yet, but they've just been diagnosed. And you say to them maybe something like, well, you know what? I'll pray for you. Do you? Do you pray? And when you pray, do you believe something will really happen? Or you just kind of, I'm not too sure, but I'm going to pray anyway? Or maybe a family member of yours is in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's. How do your prayers go then? Do you expect healing? Do you ever think to yourself, if only I had greater faith, maybe then something would happen? Why is it that some people we pray for never seem to get well, and others that we don't necessarily expect have amazing recoveries? Why is that? There's some really tough questions, and I've got to tell you, I don't have all the answers to that. But in this series, we're looking at the miracles of Jesus, and we're looking at... What did he do? Why did he do it? And, and how do we make that a part of our lives today? Um, last week, we looked at um, Jesus changing the water into wine from uh, John chapter 3. And one of the, the unique things about John's gospel particularly is that he uses, when he talks about the miracles, he uses a particular word that the other gospels don't really use. It's, he calls them signs. And it's a very specific word. It has to do with not just the event, but it's pointing to something deeper. Some truth, some understanding, some meaning for us to get. And we're going to look at another one this morning. It's found in um, John chapter 5. If you want to turn there, verses 1 through 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. There, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Kind of an odd little story. Again, there's some parts of it that are great detail and parts of it that just seem kind of, I don't really understand. What's going on here? What is it that Jesus is doing? And, and more importantly, for us, what does it mean? How do, we, how do we react to this? And I think this morning as we unpack this, I think there's some real important, very, very valuable truths for us to grab onto when it comes to this whole idea of God's working in our own life. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. How is it that the power of God works in your life? How does this thing apply to you and to me? And I think one of the first lessons in this whole thing is understand this, it is never too late. It is never too late to experience God's power in your life. It's never too late. First, a little bit of background on this whole thing. John kind of sets the stage like he did in the first, par- uh, the first miracle that we read about last week. Um, and he says, There is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Bethesda, you've heard that name before, okay? This is where it comes from, Bethesda. Which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, John gives us a great deal of detail about this. He tells us about this place. He is a first-hand eyewitness. He says this was a real place. He gives specific names. He gives specific description of the whole thing. And, and actually, we have, it ha- this place has been unearthed. This place has actually been, this pool has been unearthed. And it, ha- it had five colonnades, four on all four sides, and then one that went down the middle. This is a, he gives a very detailed description. He said, I want you to understand, this is a real thing that happened in a real place. And we've actually uncovered it. It's been unearthed now. Discovered. And it's exactly like he describes it. It's a real event that happened in a real place. This is not some embellishment that a later writer just added to the story of Jesus' life. This is an actual event. And for his contemporaries in the first century, they could go and find that pool. They didn't have to go dig it up. They knew where it was. They could go to Jerusalem. Oh, this is where it is. The sheep gate. Oh, here it is. He's, he's setting this thing in a real place because he wants to understand this is a very, very real event. Um, it's not an embellishment. And, and that, by the way, is as you read Scripture, there is great detail given so we would understand these things really did happen. And, and in fact, we don't have actually the original document. We don't have the original gospel that was written, handwritten by John. The best that we have are manuscripts. And each of these manuscripts were hand-copied from one to another. And, and so you probably notice as we went through there, um, there's a verse 3 and there's a verse 5, but there's no verse 4. Did anybody notice that? As you read through that, did you notice that? Some of your Bibles, it's in a footnote. And the footnote goes like this. They were waiting for the moving of the waters. For from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first person into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever diseases they had. Well, why is that not in the main body of the story? Because we don't have the original copy. We don't have the original document. We have manuscripts. And so when the Bible has been translated into our language, into English, what they've done is tried to go back to the earliest manuscripts. And there's a number of them. Some full manuscripts, some partial manuscripts. And, and in some of the oldest, which are considered to be some of the most reliable, that verse 4 is not in there. And so... There's a kind of a belief that, that maybe this was, this was a later edition, that some scribe who was copying this down, they put that in there so we would understand why he's talking about getting down into the pool. And, and it speaks, again, to the great accuracy and detail, not only that the original writers of Scripture um, had, but those who copied it. 
And even in translating it, that, that, that if there's an embellishment that doesn't seem like it ought to be there, or it's not found in most of the earliest manuscripts, which tend to be the most reliable, then, then they don't put it in there. See, that's how we got our Bible. Manuscripts are gathered and compared one against another. And what is amazing, what is amazing is over and over again, these vast number of manuscripts, as they are compared, they're, even though they are hand-copied, these ones are printing press, okay? Hand-copied. How, how detailed and how accurate they are from one manuscript to another. And when there is some doubt or some question about it, in the translation, they tend to leave it out. Okay? So that's kind of the background here. Now you know what's going on. This man is sitting by the pool, um, and, and if it's a later edition or not, the kind of the belief and the understanding was that if the water was stirred, there was some kind of a miracle that was about to happen. And that's what this guy's expecting here. Okay, so that's the background. And, and when Jesus comes to him, he has been there 38 years. Okay. Now, again, we can't relate to that that much because um, the average lifespan today, you know, it's somewhere in the United States, it's somewhere around 70, 80 years, something like that. In Jesus' day, in the first century, the average lifespan was closer to 30 years. Now, let me illustrate that a little bit. Uh, those of you who are over 50, well, or getting there, have you noticed, and maybe even younger than that, have you noticed that the year seems to go faster than it used to? Have you noticed that? Years just keep flying by all of a sudden. When you were a kid, it seemed like centuries before Christmas was going to get here again. Now, it's like, whoa, wasn't that yesterday? Why is that? Because it's relative. See, those of you who have been around 50 plus years, one year that's one-fiftieth of your existence. For a five-year-old kid, that's one-fifth. <laughs> and so for them, a year takes a lot longer to get around to because all they know is, is their five years. Those of us who have been around 50, 55, and then some, okay, that's a smaller percentage of our, of our lifespan. And so it goes by a lot faster. In the first century, when there's someone who, the average lifespan is 30 years old, and this guy is now 38 years he has been in this place begging and waiting and looking for a miracle. That is more than a lifetime. In other words, this has been all he knows. This is a lifetime plus. It seems to him like forever. And that's a very important detail. Because one of the things that John is telling us here in giving us that detail is it's never too late. 38 years, his whole lifetime, and then some. More than anyone would necessarily be expected to live. He has lived longer, and all of his life it has been this. Lame, laying by a pool, waiting for a miracle. It is never too late for God to work in your life. And, and that's really important because we live in a culture that lit, look, looks for the quick fix. We want instant gratification. We can't handle 38 years. We can't handle 38 days of pain. We can't even handle 38 minutes of pain. A couple of months ago, in one day, I cracked two teeth. Yeah, very painful. Okay? Just one at breakfast, one at lunch. I was eating on one side of my mouth at breakfast, cracked a tooth, so it, you know, I made an appointment. While I was at lunch, I decided, well, I can't eat on that side of my mouth. I eat on this side of my mouth. I cracked a tooth on the other side. So this is like going to the dentist, which is my least favorite thing in the whole wide world. 
I can take pain on just about any part of my body except my teeth. You know, and I go in there and I went, and, and he's, you know, and my dentist knows this by now. So he's like shooting me up with Novocaine everywhere he possibly can. Even the, even the Novocaine shot I don't like. So he's got like, I mean, like I, I got probably five or six shots of Novocaine. It was so bad when he was done with the work, you know, when you get the chance to rinse, and they give you the cup of water, and you might want to do that over the sink. Sure enough, I put it up, just dribbled out my mouth. I can't handle pain. You can't handle pain. We want the easy, quick fix. Thinner thighs in 30 days. You know? Seven steps to a better you. We want the quick answer and the easy fix. And here is a guy for 38 years. All of his life, this is all he has known. We, when we don't get instant relief, when God doesn't quickly answer our prayers and our pain and our discouragement and our struggles, when God doesn't do it right away, we start to doubt him. We start to doubt his love, his care, his concern for our lives. Now I want to tell you, whatever you are dealing with, and no matter how long you have been dealing with it in your life, It is never too late for God's power to work in your life. I don't care how long it's been or how long you've been struggling. It's never too late. Maybe you've been hurting for many years. It's never too late. I think there's something else here. If you want God to work in your life, you must want to be changed. It's never too late. But if you want God to work in your life, you must want to be changed. I don't know if this caught you as we were reading the story together, but but here is an interesting thing. Jesus sees him lying there, learned that he had been in this, how long he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, what did he ask him? Now say it with me. What is it that he asked him? Say it together. Ready? Do you want to get well? Isn't that a strange question? I mean, you know, if I'm that guy and I got a little bit of sarcasm in me, I go, no, no, thank you. I just like hanging out at this pool, you know. I got nothing better to do. No, no, just leave me and pass on by to somebody else. I kind of like it here, you know. What a dumb question. What a strange question. Why is it that Jesus is asking him this question? Do you want to get well? What do you think I'm doing here? It seems like a very strange question. And yet, I think it's an excellent question. I think it's a very, very important question because it gets down to the crux of the matter. We all have handicaps. Every one of us in this room have handicaps. They don't all show. may not be a physical handicap, but every one of us in this room have some kind of a handicap. It might be an emotional handicap. Your heart's been broken. Maybe you've been abused. Sexually, verbally, physically, mentally. Maybe you've been cheated on and betrayed. And you're hurting. It's become a handicap to you. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction that is paralyzing your life. A sin that has so grip, such a grip on your life. And, and you think it's never going to change. And, and maybe you, you've just kind of gotten used to it, but you, you're, you're not even aware of the fact that it's hurting not only you, but the people around you. And that's your handicap. Maybe here this morning you're spiritually paralyzed. You're stuck. You're blinded to the things of God. 
You don't see God working in your life. Truth be told, it's been a long, long time since you've had a fresh touch from God in your life. And you're just kind of going through the motions. Maybe that's your handicap. But every one of us in this room have some kind of handicap. And maybe you've been carrying it for a long, long time. And the question for you this morning is, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Listen to his reply. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Notice he doesn't even answer the question. What he has is excuses. What he has is complaint. What he has is reasons. Can you, can you hear the defeat in his tone? I mean, as you listen, he's discouraged. Every time I try, every time I try to get down, somebody gets ahead of me. How come other people get healed and I don't? How come other people get these breakthroughs of God's grace and I don't? How come other people get breakthroughs in, in, in the struggles that they have in their life and I don't? Somebody else gets it, but I don't. Despair. Yeah, I want to get better, but I don't know if it's ever going to happen. Or maybe even, maybe even there's resignation there. Truthfully, I don't think it ever will. This is just the way it's going to be. This is my life. This is my hurt. This is my pain. This man is friendless. He is helpless. He's hopeless. And he can't see any other possibility. All of his hope is in this one thing, trying to get down into the water before anybody else. And he has no idea who's standing in front of him and what the possibilities are. That God himself incarnate standing in front of him with all of the possibilities he could ever imagine and he can't see it because he's resigned to the fact this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. Never really answers Jesus' question. It's been my experience now for pastoring so many years that I have and and working with people, working with couples, working with individuals in counseling situations. I find that question to be very, very good. Because a lot of times people come in for counseling and all they want to do is vent. And it's the victimization or it's the, um, you know, I'm so angry because. And, and all they want is somebody to just vent on. Somebody to just lay it all out for. And they really don't have an interest in getting better. In fact, they kind of like holding on to the pain. And as painful as it might be, at least it's my pain. <laughs> and I think this is a very, very important question. Do you want to get well? Because if you want God to work in your life, you've got to want to change. Because if he's healed, things are going to change. Things are going to change drastically. Which actually moves into the next point. That God's work in your life is going to require your obedience. You've got to want to be changed. 
If you want God to work in your life, you've got to want what he's going to bring you. And if he's going to work in your life, it's going to require your obedience. God's power also includes and involves your action. God will not violate your will. Jesus gives him this command. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Notice, by the way, his lack of faith. He never really answered Jesus' question. He never really expressed what was going on. He never really believed in Jesus. But his lack of faith does not deter Jesus from working the miracle. And and that, by the way, is just another sidelight. Because sometimes we feel like it's all up to us to garner up and and, boost up and hype up some sort of feelings of faith to be able to ask God for anything. And, and, And that's not it. Because it's not the faith that you muster up. It's the one you put your faith in. And Jesus, not deterred by what this man has answered or not answered, still goes ahead and heals him. Now, again, stop and think for a moment of the implications of this. If he's going to change, this is not just going to be a healing. This is going to be a whole new life. All he has known is sitting by the pool, begging for some substance to be able to get by and waiting for a chance to get healed. That is all he has done for 38 years. If he is healed, life is going to change. He's going to have to get a job. And he has no skill sets to offer. As far as I know, begging doesn't have much of a career path to it. You see, it's not just going to be a healing. It's going to be a change of his life. And that's why that question, and that's why his response is so important. And that's why it is for each one of us. We need to want to be changed, and then we need to act in obedience. This is going to be a whole new life. And that's the way it is. When God works his miracle power in your life, it changes your life. It doesn't just fix a problem. Changes and transforms your life. It's uncharted waters for him. A lot of unknowns, a lot of uncertainty. What is this going to mean? And yet, and yet, it says, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Exactly what Jesus told him to do, by the way. Pick up your mat and walk. He picked up his mat and walked. Obedience always precedes the miraculous. There is a part in which God does his work, but there's a part in which you must respond. You must act. The book written by a man named uh, Alan Deutschman called Change or Die. It's an incredible book. Um, But he starts in chapter 1. He just talks about um, examples of people who have had heart attacks and and bypass surgery, quadruple bypass surgery. And... um, and, and that's just, a, that's like a temporary fix. That just kind of gets it, things repaired so things get flowing again. And, and these people who have these, these surgeries, their doctors tell them, okay, now you need to change your lifestyle. You need to drink less. You need to eat less. You need to exercise more. You need to relieve the stress in your life. There's all these things. You need to change your lifestyle or another year or two or three down the road, we're going to be back here doing the same surgery all over again. And what is amazing is the number of people who have that life-changing life-giving surgery, but refuse to make the changes in their lifestyle. It's amazing. But it's documented. And people who have these life-changing, life-giving surgeries will not change their lifestyle to live with the re-given life that they've had. 
And that's the deal. When God works in your life and when he brings those miraculous transformations, when he brings that answer to your prayer, it's not just a healing. It is a new life. And that is a life of obedience. And the real act of faith, the real act of faith is not saying, I believe that. The real act of faith is getting up and walking. See, I don't know. It says immediately he was cured. But at what point did he realize that? Did he feel like he was cured? Did he suddenly feel like he had the strength to stand up and walk? Or was it simply as he started to stand up, it took hold? I don't know. It's not clear. But I do know this. He never really knew he was cured until he got up and picked up his mat and walked. Obedience precedes the miraculous. And the real act of faith is obedience. We want the blessings of God, but we don't want to make the commitments. We want God to provide for us, but we don't want to follow His instructions on generosity and giving. We want God to do healing enough, but we don't want to necessarily live for Him. We want a Savior, but we don't want a Lord. God, I want you to keep me from hell, but I don't want to necessarily follow your commandments. It's not an either or. (laughs) He saves us from ourselves so we can live a new life. And that new life is a life of obedience. And there is no way that a human being can come to God that does not involve surrender and obedience. When God works in your life, it is not only to heal and a hurt and solve a problem, It is to transform a life. Because the ultimate aim of God's power at work in us is our redemption. Now, I don't know if this, again, this is one of those, I don't know if you caught this or if this bothered you at all or what in the world was going on here, but it says later, later, because he he gets up and walks, and Jesus kind of disappears into the crowd. And, And when the Pharisees ask him, you know, who healed you? He doesn't even know. But later, Jesus finds him. Finds him at the temple, verse 15, and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now that raises questions. Now, because we know, and we've talked about this already, there is this sense and and this belief that sin equals suffering. So if I'm suffering, there must be sin. And Is Jesus endorsing that? Is he saying that's your problem? You've been a sinner, so that's why you needed a healing? I don't think so. And all through Scripture, we're told, it's given very, very clear, that's not always the case. There is no direct correlation between sin and suffering necessarily. Job, who was a righteous man, more righteous than all, suffered more than anybody. Not because of his sin, but because of his righteousness. God bragged about him. Joseph, sold off by his brothers, spent years in a prison in Egypt because he was righteous, because he did the right thing, even though he was accused. King David, called by God to be the next king of Israel. Yet he was was hunted down like an animal by King Saul, who doesn't want him to take over his throne, because he was righteous. And in fact, we're going to get to it in a couple weeks. John chapter 9, there is a blind man that Jesus heals. and and, and, And when they're walking by and they see the blind man, the disciples ask, Lord, why is it this man was born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, it's none of the above. 
So we know that's not about this sin equal suffering thing. There's something else going on here. Remember, we said this is a sign. It's pointing to something deeper, a deeper meaning, a deeper truth, a deeper need. And I think what Jesus is saying here is there is something worse than physical paralysis. There is a paralysis of the soul. And that not only affects your life here on this earth, it affects your eternity. And I think what Jesus is saying to him is, you know, there's all kinds of great feelings now that you're healed and you're just like on cloud nine. But listen, this wasn't just about a healing. This is about your life now. And you've got to change your life. Because worse, worse than physical paralysis is the paralysis of the soul. And that's your deeper need. John Ortberg puts it this way. Jesus does not come to rearrange the outside of our life the way we want. He comes to rearrange the inside of our lives the way God wants. And in Jesus, in Jesus, we see the ultimate demonstration of undeserved suffering. The prophet Isaiah wrote about it this way. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The ultimate demonstration of undeserved suffering. And he did it, Scripture tells us, for me and for you so that we could be healed, so that we could be restored, so that we could experience life. And there is no greater miracle in this world, in this life, than that. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.